This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Welcome to this call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND. We are discussing post war reconstruction in Ukraine, which may well be the largest rebuilding effort in modern history. We have a new report out on the topic today, and I'm joined by the authors Howard Schatz, a senior economist at RAND. Ambassador Charlie Reese, an adjunct senior fellow, and Gabby Torini, an associate policy researcher. Ambassador Jim Dobbins also worked on the report. Uh, we're recording this call and we'll post it as a podcast on RAND.org. I will lead a quick discussion to get us started. And then if we have others join us on the call, they can pose questions as well. Uh, Howard, I'll start with you. Uh, war is still raging. So why focus on reconstruction now? Yeah, so the war is still raging, but what we're looking at is is possibly the largest post-war reconstructed effort of the modern era. And that's going to take significant amount of planning. The big question is why would we why would we be concerned about this? Why would we want to plan for it in the first place? And this because the the post-war reconstruction of Ukraine is best seen as a continuation of the 75-year rebuilding and reintegration of Europe something that the United States has led and been an important part of, uh, starting from the West, the reconstruction of Western Europe after World War II, the reconstruction and integration of Eastern and Central Europe after the end of the Cold War, and then the Western Balkans after the violent breakup of Yugoslavia. So this is yet another step in that very important policy direction that the United States started after World War II. Is it is it routine to be... Uh commencing with reconstruction in the middle of a conflict? Uh, so we look at past reconstruction events, and it often takes time for reconstruction to get started. Reconstruction actually got started only about three years or so after the end of World War II. And during those three years, 1945 to 1948, uh, you know, there, was, there, were, there were people were not earning good livelihoods in Western Europe. There was a problem of uh, encroachment of communism with the Soviet Union. So, you know, without any kind of planning, uh, these delays can mount and they can lead to human misery and to, to failed economies and to basically foreign policy failures. So, uh, so it is important to start planning now. And we have experience with this. If I can add to that, Jeff, uh, in, the, in those years in, in, uh, in Europe, 45, 46, part of 47, the international community's entire focus was relief, not reconstruction. And uh, the problem, of course, is you can uh, provide temporary housing and, uh, and food assistance, but unless you help uh, the, the victims, uh, those who have suffered through the conflict, rebuild uh, their economies, their their factories, their farms, you'll be in the relief phase forever. Uh, and so it's really important to be prepared uh, ahead of time so that when the fighting stops and the circumstances allow, you can move immediately to that reconstruction phase. Even there, the reconstruction phase will take a long time because uh, there are there are things you have to do first, second, and third to rebuild the infrastructure, the power grid, the water grid, those kinds of things. 
what kind of money are we talking about? Uh, there was a report from World Bank, UN, Ukrainian officials in March. So it was over $400 billion. Does that sound about right, or is that just a starting point? Uh, I think uh, uh, that it, it, it clearly is in the ballpark. It, that is to say, it will be a lot. It will be a lot more than uh, a post-war reconstruction, uh, in, in certainly in current dollars and maybe in real dollars, uh, that we've ever seen. It's a, the country is a large country. The devastation uh, of housing and factories and farms and so forth has been really very extensive. Uh, but we really won't know for sure uh, how much it will cost uh, 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 until it's over and we can look back and find uh, what the spending was, what the private investment was uh, attributable to recovery from damage to the war. Right, and Jeff, if I would add to that, um, you know, the, uh, the Ukrainians themselves have come up with a reconstruction plan. Uh, that they value at about $750 billion over over 10 years. And that $750 billion, it could come to pass, but it also depends on the quality of the construction uh, on a number of factors. Uh, what is important to keep in mind is that when we talk about these very large sums, we're not necessarily talking about all of it coming from international aid. There really, there will be and there needs to be a large component of private sector investment. Uh, and so that's that goes back to what Charlie said is we don't we won't know the final amount that will be spent for reconstruction because we don't know how much investment there will be, nor do we know the business conditions in Ukraine uh, that will that will lay the grounds for that investment. Andrea, did you want to go ahead and jump in? Um, I'm, I'm wondering on, on the question of the reconstruction cost. Um, you know, that World Bank estimate was, of course, done in cooperation with the Ukrainian government and the European Union authorities. And my understanding had been that that 750 that you mentioned just before was, you know, like an initial kind of ballpark figure, big kind of big reach. Right. Um, and the work that was done to get to the 411 billion was much more detailed and meticulous. The World Bank last week when the dam was um, destroyed, said they were going to do a rapid needs assessment of that specific incident. But does the shift in what the rush, you know, what's being attacked, that kind of civilian infrastructure, give you clues as to, you know, where the trajectory is going? I mean, do you fear that the it's going to be kind of a steep climb from the 411? Can you just Kind of put some color around that and maybe if you have an assessment already for what just just the damage to the dam will, right. so will the, be so the world bank the world bank amount uh usually has several components if i remember correctly mm -hmm. one is the actual replacement cost of the damage and then part of it also is kind of the total economic cost mm -hmm. uh, and that is pretty exact and we've seen that estimate rise as time has gone on uh, the dam break just means that the estimate's going to continue to rise. Uh, and we don't know how much that dam break will cost. Uh, in terms of physical destruction, it'll be one amount. In terms of economic destruction, uh, you know, you know, a negative negative hit to the economy. If if that inundation uh, ruins a planting season. Uh, for a year, or if it does something to the soil that makes it more difficult to plant, 
then we're talking about much larger amounts. Uh, and that's that's another another issue is as the war goes on, the amounts will will probably increase. Um, can I just follow up on that question then in terms of like one thing that's happening is that um, you know, one is trying to sort of keep an eye beyond the war, an eye on what happens beyond the war. So the whole reconstruction recovery piece, but the war is still going on. Um, and, I, you know, to what extent will a robust military industrial complex play a role in the reconstruction of of uh, Ukraine? Uh, I, I, if I understand the question right, I mean, clearly, to the extent that the Ukrainian uh, uh, military industrial complex uh, it can be recovered, uh, some of the it, 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 and and will start spending uh, or will start um, acquiring uh, orders for replacement of of uh, things that are damaged in, during the war, uh, just like other kinds of assets that will contribute uh, to recovery and that it will put people back to work. It will spin off uh, other benefits. There will be you know, consumption of, of energy and steel and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, payment of labor and so forth. And that generates um, uh, follow-on effects. So clearly any, um, uh, any amount of uh, the, the, the inputs to recovery, the inputs to reconstruction, uh, of the Ukrainian economy that are produced domestically uh, mm -hmm. have higher multiplier effects and uh, and can help the Ukrainian economy recover. Now, the Ukrainian economy will be very damaged and it will not be something that all of the recovery mm -hmm. needs can be met from domestic manufacture. But um, uh, to the extent that there is domestic manufacture, that's a good thing. And you know, one of the key components to sort of rebuilding any industry, you know, and, and bringing in outside partners, international firms to help in that process is some kind of war insurance. What's the status on that at this point? There's been discussion of war insurance. Uh, I think both MIGA at the World Bank Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency has discussed it. Uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there are some nascent programs. They're small. Uh, yeah, very small. My understanding, not not enough to make a big difference right now, uh, although the war is is still going on now. Uh, I'm afraid I, I don't have more uh, on that. I don't know, Charlie, mm -hmm. if you if you've seen more. Well, I would uh, one of the one of the aspects of our report writ large uh, is that we do not feel that recovery or reconstruction uh, is simply an economic problem. That is to say that the security challenges for uh, Ukraine uh, following the end of hostilities will be large and you can't achieve uh, sustainable recovery without sustainable security. Um, and that sort of stands to reason, right? If you want people to invest in an economy, they have to feel that their assets are going to be protected in the future. And so Gabby's taken the lead in writing um, uh, our chapter on security and our consideration of the security aspects. But in this context, when you think about, I mean, just think about, um, uh, you know, uh, ordinary uh, damages in an economy. If, you're, if your uh, house is flooded, 
you're not going to rebuild the house unless you have flood insurance so that the the rebuilding won't won't happen and for that matter you might actually want a levy or something like that so it's less likely to be flooded uh the same concepts apply to ukraine ukraine uh we would be in a relief phase unless uh, the international community, the investing community, the aid agencies had confidence that the that that a year later there's not going to be a renewed conflict and everything that you build is going to be blown up again. Yeah, Andrea, I'd, I'd add to that and, and build on that. Right, the the war insurance is going to be important, but it's a small component probably more important, certainly as important, is some kind of security arrangement or some kind of security guarantee. Um, and there are a number of things on the table with that. Yeah, I would just add to that, that whatever security arrangement that Ukraine and its allies uh, come up with, the the key is that any kind of arrangement will have to um, deter renewed Russian attack. And the benefits of um, not reattacking will have to outweigh the costs. And so Ukraine will have powerful incentives to keep the peace in the form of this massive reconstruction effort in the form of EU membership. Mm -hmm. um, but Russia will not be offered any comparable benefits and its adherence to whatever settlement or peace will rest principally on deterrence. And mm -hmm. the U.S., of course, has a number of deterrence options at various strengths and levels. But finding an approach that will be strong enough to de deter Russian reattack, uh, but that does not unnecessarily provoke Russia, will be the key here for security arrangements. Interesting you say that because we're we're just about to publish a story about what's happening in the sort of run up to the summit in Vilnius, and there's obviously a lot of active discussion about just these very topics um, within the Quad, and then also. Um, reaching out to sort of the broader NATO membership. And it does seem like there is strong agreement that some kind of security commitments are needed. Um, what form they take and what the specifics are seems to not be clearly worked out, but I, but I take your point that deterrence is critical. H how important is it for something to happen? Like what, how important is it for something to happen in time for Vilnius, just to sort of send the signal? I think Vilnius represents a you know, focal point for these discussions. I think that planning in the run-up to Vilnius and at Vilnius itself would send a strong signal that um, allies are committed to finding some kind of security arrangement for Ukraine that will enable reconstruction and, you know, Membership in NATO would obviously be the strongest possible deterrent for Ukraine, um, but it's clear that allies are not, um, there's not unanimity in NATO on that right now, and there's not a consensus. And so the lack of consensus could delay or block Ukraine's membership, which could um, reduce um, the deterrent that, that um, NATO provides. So I think that in the report, we cover a number of, number of alternatives for security and their respective drawbacks and respective benefits. NATO is certainly one of them, but I think it's important to remember that NATO, which is the current model for European security, only offers a binary choice. Um, a country is in NATO or it's out of NATO. Mm -hmm. um, allies have already begun to carve out 
new models in a third way as they're providing assistance to Ukraine um, without forming a permanent attachment. And so these alternatives that will be debated and considered at Vilnius may result in new models for Ukraine security that haven't been seen in Europe um, thus far. Are you talking about something like what's happening with Rammstein? Um, talking about potential security guarantees either from the US or from the Quad or from other non-NATO allies, um, some kind of multinational security guarantee. Um, there are a number of different options that um, allies could consider uh, in the run-up to Vilnius and at Vilnius. Mm -hmm. You know, we, in, in terms of this is going to be this is going to be, I think, a very interesting month or two months. Uh, as you mentioned, Vilnius, we we have a number of things on tap, and all of these will feed into both the war and reconstruction, which is what we looked at. We have the London conference next week. Um, and there's a real question about what will come out of that. Will it just be more words or will there be something concrete that comes out of it? We have Vilnius. We have, I haven't seen it yet. I've been looking for it. We should have a report from the European Commission sooner than later on how Ukraine is doing for its seven requirements to move on from candidate status to from initial candidate status. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, the, the Ukraine is, is quite intent on becoming a member of the EU as well. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have the counteroffensive. And and all of these things are going to send signals both to Ukraine and to the world uh, about Western support uh, and, and, you know, about the near term and, and, and the long term, possibly. Uh, so, you know, directly in terms of reconstruction, the London conference will be important. And and I suspect that Vilnius will then build on the results or somehow, you know, it will be at least in the back of the minds of people in Vilnius. I mean, to my mind, it's been a two-track kind of thing, right? The security stuff's happening over here. The economic stuff is happening over here. You know, there's, it's obviously connected, but yeah. That's the point we've been trying to make, that that it is intimately connected totally connected. I mean, you can't even, you can say, well, the economy uh, can't recover uh, without security. But for that matter, you won't have security if the economy is a disaster, which is, of course, what motivated the Marshall Plan, uh, the fear of uh, spreading dis uh, disorder in, in Western Europe uh, as, you know, two years of, of relief lines uh, soured everybody. I mean, I think it comes to, you see it, it comes into sharp relief with an incident like the dam being destroyed because it has so many massive consequences for everything. I mean, as you're saying, crops and the environment, the mines, the security situation, you know, just the energy, electricity generation, it's just compounded. Yes. Did you, I, I think I asked, but I don't know, but did, do you have any kind of a sense of the dollar figure that will be, you know? Well, we you started talking, you mean I was specific to the thing. dam? You, you mean yeah, this, the, the dam. No, I don't think we, uh, I, nobody seems to have a good handle. You can look at the pictures and see the flooding. It looks like a you know, Hurricane Katrina or something like that, uh, which itself was seven or $10 billion dollars. 
but uh, obviously it depends on the extent of the flooding, uh, the damage to other infrastructure like bridges and uh, power lines and, and so forth. And uh, it also depends on the costs um, uh, involved in the, in the drying out and rebuilding. And, and that in some ways that won't be known until the waters recede. It's also spring. Gabby, am I right that one of the things that you looked at here was lessons from other natural disasters? It, yeah, I, I, I can't remember in, which one of you did that. I think it was you. Yeah, I think in in some ways the dam um, disaster kind of gets at one of the other threads in our report, which is that um, post-war reconstruction Ukraine is going to look a lot like post-natural disaster um, recovery and reconstruction in the U.S. and all over the world, in that the effects on Ukraine are whole of economy effects. Um, so we looked in our report at the lessons from natural disasters as they might apply to Ukraine's reconstruction. Um, everything from the need to sequence and prioritize essential tasks to get reconstruction jump-started, um, the importance of engaging local entities and civil society in reconstruction, um, the recognition that local capacity might be stressed, um, with critical personnel displaced and uh, wound and, wounded and killed, um, and, and everything from the need from um, donor coordination and um, IDP and refugee returns. So there are some really critical lessons that our report examines um, from post-natural disaster reconstruction that could be applied to Ukraine. One of the one of the other aspects of the dam break that has applied to the whole Ukraine uh, war is that it's leading to more displaced people. Ukraine already has about a third of its pre-war population displaced, either internally displaced or uh, refugees in Europe. And so this this will compound that, and that's that's another cost, and it's another long-term challenge for reconstruction. In that, as Gabby said. Uh, reconstruction is going to have to take account of, of whether people will be able to be resettled where they came from, uh, and if so, the sequencing of tasks that will that will go into that. Maybe just to tick through a few of the other things that you all think need to be done to get this ball rolling. I, I think some particular uh, approach to U.S. legislation is uh, in the mix. What, what do you all think on that score? Well, let me start with that and and uh, Howard uh, and Gabby, come, uh, feel free to come in. Uh, we looked uh, in that respect uh, at the uh, uh, at the precedence from the enlargement or well of the uh, the the fall of the wall the, uh, and the uh, incorporation of Central Europe, uh, Eastern Europe after uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union and uh, and the Balkan conflict. And one of the things that Congress did with particular uh, farsightedness, at least in our judgment, was to understand, first of all, that the U.S. efforts in this area needed to be coordinated with the Europeans uh, and that there needed to be a senior coordinator with that responsibility. Um, and uh, at, at first, uh, Deputy Secretary Larry Eagleburger was placed in charge of uh, U.S. assistance uh efforts and a, a series of uh 
of uh, assistance coordinators for Europe were um, were uh, appointed uh, pursuant to the legislation for um, uh, for Eastern Europe and separately for the newly independent states, the, the uh, states that emerged out of the Soviet Union. Uh, this coordinator had the um, uh, the charge uh, and the responsibility to coordinate all aspects of uh, U.S. government, all the many alphabet soup of assistance agencies, some of which have changed names since then, uh, to, to make sure that our assistance was, A, coordinated with the Europeans, didn't duplicate them, filled gaps, uh, was uh, effective and uh, on occasion to uh, utilize something called notwithstanding authority, which allowed uh, him to uh, instruct agencies to uh, do things notwithstanding other provisions of law. Very, very effective uh, at stimulating growth and successful transition uh, in uh, countries like Poland, Czech Republic, uh, 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 and and also in the Balkans. And the two-decade-long history of that, it actually still continues to monitor the, the uh, U.S. investments in these areas, but the 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 main effort uh, made a real difference, and is uh, is a is a uh, a reason why states like Poland uh, today are as strong and economically vibrant as they are, and, and able themselves to contribute to Ukrainian uh, uh, Ukraine's challenges. What what level of individual would that would that be, and what would the reporting structure be for? Uh, uh, well, I mean, there, the, there's the, uh, the there are two basic pieces of legislation uh, involved: the support for Eastern European democracy, or the Seed Act, and then um, uh, the uh, F FSA. I think is uh, uh, I can't remember what the one for the former Soviet Union was called, but they they set up this position, assistance coordinator Europe, and a whole office to coordinate all of the agencies of the U.S. government that were doing uh, this kind of work and to coordinate with the Europeans. Right now, Jeff, right now, there's there's coordination through a G7 coordination platform, and, and the current people who are handling that is the Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics from the United States. Uh, a director general from the European Commission and then the Minister of Finance from Ukraine. And you know that's a, that's the right level. but but all of those uh, all of those people have day jobs as well, uh, as opposed to a coordinator who would be full time on this. There's another piece of legislation that that ought to be considered, and that is uh, the United States uh, in in helping Eastern Europe, started what were called enterprise funds uh, and they they were investment vehicles for the countries of eastern europe and former soviet union they did not lose money they made money and they did exactly what what aid and really only aid is capable of doing which was or government assistance which was taking on high risk uh high risk important tasks that the private sector might otherwise not fund but that are very important for reconstruction. And, you know, given the successful model, that's something that can be replicated uh, and expanded uh, for Ukraine. Yeah, uh, the enterprise funds actually were 
run by uh, independent boards, largely with people with extensive financial markets experience. And their charge was generally to take minority positions uh, in uh, private sector investments that were strategic. So often they invested in banks to get the financial sector up and running again, and insurance companies and a, a wide variety of strategic investments where there may there may be an identified private sector investor willing to to take it forward. But uh, the investor either needs someone else as a partner to share the risk. Uh, and the implied political support of uh, a U.S. government-affiliated enterprise fund. These enterprise funds in many countries uh, uh, actually made money uh, when they divested of their the private sector firms six, seven, eight years later. They made considerable profits, uh, which were repaid to the U.S. Treasury, and then the the, the surplus beyond that was uh, converted into foundations that continue to be active in a lot of these countries even today. Um, uh, so, I mean, compared to uh, grant assistance, which is basically granted, uh, it, it, and um, uh, and you don't get a continuing stream of claims, they're financially advantageous. But more importantly, it seems to me that they fill a void uh, in an immediate post-conflict situation where their high risks, uh, as we've been talking about earlier, uh, how secure is the situation going to be three years from now? And uh, a strategic investor willing to take uh, minority positions and important investments can make uh, all the difference, uh, and it can be a decent investment uh, for the taxpayers as well. Thanks, uh, Andrew. Feel free. Yeah, just real quickly on that. So, uh, and I'm sorry, I haven't had a chance to read the report. Who, which agency would do that? Is it? Would it be like you know we have this multi-donor platform now we're doling out you know we're figuring out the the needs and then doling out the money would it be that which seems to have a pretty you know where the eu's got a pretty strong hand or are we talking about something that like would be home well specifically the enterprise funds themselves they were us government uh entities the the, the money was allocated it was uh, appropriated to usaid but with the instruction that they fund enterprise funds in poland uh and the other uh, hungary and so forth albania whatever and they did do that uh, generally in the 50 million dollar range or so the initial allocation of funds and then they operated like investors like uh, uh, a, a venture capitalist and they mm -hmm. they uh, had um, staff dedicated staff and they found investments that needed uh, funding uh, in partnership they didn't do anything all by themselves um uh the europeans did not do anything similar to that uh in the uh, uh in the aftermath of the cold war uh their main contribution was the various enlargement uh, processes first the europe agreements and then the the uh, enlargement process that that brought the central europeans into the eu uh eventually in 2004 and 2008 so you would you would want that to happen through USAID again? Uh, well, I mean USAID the 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 
the bureaucracy of USAID uh, didn't, I mean, they were a conduit for the money, but that this was an independent organization. Um, uh, and uh, they made investments uh, as an enterprise fund uh, uh, with their own instructions to, to fill strategic gaps and, and uh, make investments that would had the prospect of being profitable. There are other windows, of course. There's uh, the the former OPIC, which is now the development. What is it? The, the DFC. DFC. The DFC. Development um, Finance uh, Corporation. Finance Corporation, which have similar mandates, uh, although less country specific and less uh, kind of entrepreneurial. And I would, you know, DFC can do a, a great deal. Uh, USAID can do a great deal. And what's important is that we not in the in the aftermath of the conflict that we not have a a, a competition between aid agencies and the World Bank and the other multilaterals right. that uh, there's an understanding uh, reached by senior level coordinators that are empowered and knowledgeable about who's going to take the lead in what sector, who's going to build hospitals, who's going to build power grids, who's going to work on the water sector. Uh, and then uh, whoever takes that on alone or in partnership has enough money and enough technical expertise to get it done. Yeah, Andrea, you're you're hitting at a broader point, which is a real risk to reconstruction, which is the multiplicity of donors and lack of coordination. Um, now, you know, there are a couple things that might mitigate against that. One is, as Charlie noted, senior coordinators and uh, is a coordination platform. But the third is that is that in terms of setting priorities, EU accession will play a very large role in setting the priorities for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when we when we looked at organization, the U.S. has traditionally led on security issues in all of these cases after World War II, after the fall of the Cold War, after in the Western Balkans, Europe, you know, led on reform and reconstruction after the Cold War and in the Western Balkans. And it, and it is not just reconstruction. It is reform as well. Because Ukraine has been an economic underperformer ever since uh, independence. Mm -hmm. It has had high levels of corruption. There's some improvement, but but there's widespread acknowledgement that there needs to be reform. And this, this can all be done uh, under the, the very invasive uh, EU accession process. It will have mm -hmm. to be done uh, if Ukraine, in fact, wants to succeed at EU accession. Yeah. I'm and afraid I, I have I, to hop off, but it's okay. been so fascinating. I'm just so, um, I mean, you know, I spent a month there in August last year, and I've been trying to get back. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of staggering, you know, the needs, but also the resilience of the people and the, I mean, you know, incredibly like the financial sector and just it's really kind of striking how much is still functioning despite. Yeah, no. That's the key. That is actually a key differentiator between this situation and, for example, Iraq and Afghanistan, where you didn't have uh, capable uh, uh, domestic governments. You didn't have uh, uh, domestic unity. You had, in fact, an active insurgency. And uh, it gives us a great deal of hope that with the proper international support, 
uh, proper security environment, the continuing commitment of the, the Ukrainians to combine recovery with reform, this this can succeed. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. I hope, I hope we can stay in touch. I'm looking forward to reading Absolutely. the whole report. Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I'm just going to hit one or two other points before we uh, before we uh, wrap this up. Uh, Y'all were talking about competition just then among agencies, uh, uh, governments, potentially you know, multilaterals. What about potential competition between Republicans and Democrats here in the U.S.? Uh, you you note the importance of bipartisanship in this effort. Uh, how what what can be done from our perspective on that score? Maybe Gabby could start on this one. Yeah, I think, I mean, you hit a key point, um, sustaining U.S. public support and sustaining bipartisan support well, this for this effort is going to be vital for its success. Um, and I'll just point to one of our historical case studies as an example of this. Um, in the lead up to the Marshall Plan, the Truman administration, as well as congressional leaders, embarked on a very well-coordinated bipartisan effort to gain public support for the Marshall Plan. Um, and although, you know, the Marshall Plan stands out for its success, that this support um, and it, the public approval was not at all certain. It really took a massive grassroots public education campaign to get the public to understand what the benefits of this plan and the use of their tax dollars would accomplish. Um, the administration was in touch with Congress um, at every step of the legislation from the very beginning. And so it's it's critical that this administration do the same thing as it thinks about how to fund and spend taxpayer dollars on on this effort in a um, you know a, a pretty um, contentious political environment. Charlie or Howard, did you want to weigh on this? Uh, well, I, you know, I, yes, uh, that's absolutely uh, vital to to to, uh, to do this in a bipartisan manner. And and uh, Arthur Vander, Vandenberg played an important role in the in the Truman uh, effort to get support for the Marshall Plan and for and NATO, for that matter, who was an important Republican committee chairman at the time. Uh, but also, it's important, I think, for um, for Americans and for the U.S. government uh, writ large, Congress and the administration, to talk to the American people uh, around the country so that they understand uh, the stakes. Um, and uh, they really, the stakes couldn't be higher. It's uh, basically, uh, it would it, be wonderful if Ukraine can win the war. But uh, that uh, success would be um, lost if they lost the peace. Next week, uh, there will be the donors conference in London. To, uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts about how that's coming together? Uh, advice you might have for those who are attendance, in attendance and the U.S. role there? Uh, well, I'll start, uh, Howard. I'm sure we'll have uh, other insights as well. Uh, th this is the uh, Ukraine Recovery Conference. It's not the donors conference, it's the recovery conference. And I think that in this case, the name matters because uh, it, it is all about all of the elements uh, that, the, that the international community should be aware of 
for um, uh, for the successful recovery uh, post-war of uh, Ukraine and its integration uh, with the rest of Europe. Uh, it's a good start. Um, in Lugano last July, uh, the um, uh, the Lugano uh Ukraine Recovery Conference, which is uh, co-sponsored or co-hosted uh, by Ukraine and, uh, in that case, the Swiss, in this case, the British, um, uh, put out something called the, uh, the Lugano Principles. Um, and they're really uh, very much consistent with what we've been saying in, in our uh, report as well. It's about partnership. It's about local involvement. It's about reform. It's about transparency and accountability. All these things are Lugano principles. And uh, as I read the London conference, uh, there will be further elaboration, both of those principles and of the planning and coordination uh, for uh, the the assistance phase and the and the recovery phase to come. Uh, you know, you know, we, we the the recovery conference is going to talk about assistance. A lot of focus is on assistance. You know, we, we found in the relevant cases that uh, assistance is important, but doesn't necessarily make up for the majority of funding. Uh, and there's there's got to be a lot of private sector investment. It has to come from international investors. It has to come from Ukrainian investors, whether they're in the country or the diaspora. And part of what is going to motivate this investment is international linkages. So opportunities to trade, uh, basically the business environment in Ukraine. And after World War II, the United States, through the Marshall Plan, through the institutions, made sure that the Europeans would trade with each other. After the fall of the wall, there was an enormous amount of German investment, primarily, but European investment into what was then the Visegrad Four, uh, uh, Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, and Slovak Republic. And that made a difference. Uh, Western Balkans, I think you'll see that the countries that are most successful are those that are most globally linked and attracting investment. Same thing in other post-war reconstruction uh, uh, events. So, you know, there's Ukraine really needs to pay quite important attention to its business climate. The other thing is uh, corruption is a big issue. Has been a big issue for 30 years in Ukraine. And, you know, if if there is ever fragility in international support, it is likely to be caused when there is a major reconstruction scandal. And so, you know, there needs to be some kind of strong inspector general function in Ukraine. Uh, there has to be strong monitoring and evaluation by international, by the financial institutions, by bilateral donors. That has to be arranged. And there, there also has to be extensive data sharing between the international community and Ukraine so that reconstruction be, can be monitored and, and corruption can be limited. It's been plaguing. It's been a problem for Ukraine since 1991. And it will be an even bigger problem uh, more that Ukraine needs international support. Can I can I just piggyback one last point on that? Uh, it, it, Howard's point about how investment needs to come from Ukrainians themselves, the Ukrainians uh, that are internally dis displaced, those outside of the country and uh, Ukrainians that are in place. One thing that is important for that is a supportive domestic financial system 
Um, if you think about it, there's widespread destruction of housing. Housing is a particular example where uh, mortgage finance, uh, housing finance uh, of whatever sort can help uh, Ukrainians themselves invest in their own future, their own rebuilding, their own houses. Uh, and the same is true for small businesses and and and, and little local uh, Ukrainian companies. If they can get access to domestic finance, uh, that's really important. And that's one reason when we were talking about the Ukrainian uh, the enterprise funds. Uh, mentioned the fact that uh, many of the enterprise funds made strategic investments in banks. The banks then lent, they, they, they basically made a market, a domestic credit market, uh, to provide lending to those who were rebuilding their own facilities. And that's just as important as getting Ford or, or Mercedes to build a new factory because that's economic activity and that's uh, addressing the needs of the people as seen by them themselves and willing to uh, take a share of the risk in doing so. Jeff, one other, one other source of financing, which is being uh, widely discussed, is the use of uh, Russian assets, both official assets, reserves that are now frozen in the West uh, and assets that belong to people under sanction uh, that can be separated them if there's some kind of criminal link. Uh, that's in a, that's a, there's a lot of money at stake, probably on the order of, of uh, $300 billion uh, or more. Uh, using the private assets, the oligarch assets, is, is a little easier. There's more legal ground on that. Uh, there's still a number of issues around using the Russian official reserves. And and there there are two main ones. One is there's Legal authority right now is quite debatable for turning those assets from frozen into seized and then repurposed. The other is, uh, you know, there are risks to the international financial system, the use of uh, the dollar as a reserve currency and, and uh, you know, what kinds of other arrangements have been made with those reserves. So this will all be worked out. Is it's it's though they will likely end up being used for reconstruction, but it is it is not simple. It is not as simple as saying we will use the frozen Russian reserves for reconstruction. It will clearly be part of a post-war settlement. Uh, uh, Russian um, uh, indemnities for damages that they have caused. Okay, lost to chew on. All right, I think we'll call it here. Uh, Charlie, Gabby, Howard, thanks for joining. Uh, Diane, Leah, thanks for helping organize. Thank thanks you. everybody. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.